1: Burrow.com dot com slash acast. Good morning, Jim. Great to be back again, this time for our second podcast of the week. Regular listeners will remember that we used to do two podcasts a week for quite some time, and then it fell by the wayside over the summer for summer-type reasons, as both Jim and I separately took our various holidays. But we've managed to just about to keep it to one a week. So now we're going to start moving it back when we've got stuff to talk about to two a week. We won't do it for its own sake. But I'd like to say thanks to everybody for listening And the benchmark or watershed that we we passed this weekend is half a million downloads since we started about 18 months ago, which for a couple of fellas doing it from their front rooms is is pretty, pretty cool. We've enjoyed it anyway. Half a million to us sounds like a lot, which has raised the question in our minds. One we'd like to ask the listeners is what do we actually do next? and if anyone wants to say stop doing it please feel free one of the things that um, a very nice listener and more than one has has noticed is that has asked the question actually what how long will jim and chris do this in this way because there are various things that we can do we can continue doing it like we do it which is there are there is no sponsorship no advertising or we could go down that route and we're not sure how how long we can continue doing it for love and so commercialization is something that we have chatted about occasionally we've been approached once or twice by sponsors but so far have gently resisted that for all sorts of reasons but uh, obviously for it this to become sustainable over the long term i think it has to be commercialized in some shape or form it's been nice for both of us in the sense that it has actually generated some work via things like consultancy and or public speaking projects which is great so that there, there is a quasi commercialization that, that's happened already but directly for the podcast i'd like to ask listeners if they have a view to let us know what route do you think that we should take that they would find most congenial in order to make this podcast a wee bit more sustainable than it currently feels so To today's agenda, I'm going to hand straight over to the other half of the other hand, um, Jim
0: Power. Good to talk again. This day week, we have the Irish budget. I want to talk a little bit about that and particularly the sort of uh, political backdrop to that budget and the the sense in society uh, that government can just basically pay for everything. I want to talk about energy markets. There's a lot going on in terms of natural gas prices in terms of oil prices and so on. Inflation continues to raise its head in countries like Japan and Germany most recently. And it's also a really important week on the central bank front with a number of different central banks either about to or just having made decisions on interest rates. So a a pretty packed agenda. I'd like to start with the The budget situation here, if I may, the budget is being presented on September twenty seventh, which is this day week. Department of Finance, in a summer economic statement at the beginning of July, suggested that six point seven billion would be the budget package, and that just over a billion of that would go towards some reduction in personal taxation, and around five point seven billion would go on increased expenditure. But things have moved on since then. That package of 6.7 billion, as I understand it, is still going to be the ballpark. But on top of that, there's going to be an additional package of one off cost of living measures, which is estimated to be around 3 billion. But of course, the, the irrigators of the money tree, Sinn Féin, actually wanted three point eight. Billion package, but my sense is that it's going to be around three billion. So it's it's going to be a pretty generous budgetary package. There's no doubt about that. I notice that the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is part of the AROCTUS that advises AROCTUS members on economic and financial issues, it is out with its pre-budget publication today, and it's saying that current spending would need to increase by seven point zero four billion in order to account for unexpected inflation in 22 and in 2023. So the package is likely to be a little bit smaller than that, but not significantly. But there is a sense out there that the role of government is basically to totally dictate our lives and help us with every little problem we have. And maybe that is a notion that actually gained sustenance during COVID-19 when the state played a very important role in supporting households and businesses. But I noticed that at a dart station, there were Sinn Féin members handing out leaflets, advertising a protest and a march to the doll in Dublin next Saturday to protest at the cost of living and basically calling for government to spend every cent they have in order to help offset these cost of living problems. So it's just an amazing sort of mentality that has crept in that the the government really should be doing absolutely everything to mollycodile Molly us through life. And before I hand over to you on that, Chris, another point I think worth mentioning is that a couple of years ago, a commission on pensions recommended that the state pension age would increase from 66 to 67 in 30, 2031, and would then increase to 68 by 2039. And this really is a recognition of increased life expectancy and, of course, the bill on the state from an aging population. But that those suggestions were met with absolutely incredible political backlash, and the government has backed off it. The state pension apparently. Proposals are going to be taken to the cabinet this week. Uh, The state pension will remain at 66, but from 2024 onwards, there will be increased PRSI on both employers and employees in order to pay for this 66 year state age pension. Okay. But they also are saying that while people will get the state pension at 66, they can work until they're 70. And for every year, they work over 66, they will get an extra 5% in their state pension. So there's an inducement here to try and get people to work longer into their lives. I cannot but feel again that this resonates with something that we've discussed on this podcast and that we got a lot of feedback actually about over the last couple of podcasts about the lot of young people in Ireland, you know, cannot but feel very sorry for young people in Irish society at the moment, in a sense that the housing market, both from a owner-occupier and from a rental perspective, um, is an incredible problem that's causing serious social and economic difficulties for young people. We have proposals from the Commission on Taxation and Social Welfare last week that, capital acquisitions tax should be increased and that the threshold should be reduced further. So in other words, whatever chance uh, young people have of inheriting something from their parents will be taxed even more now. That is despite the fact that this money has already been taxed in the system. So there really does appear to be a conspiracy building against young people. And these latest pension proposals, I think, just accentuate that trend.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpick there, Jim. Pensions, I think I broadly agree with you. On inheritance taxes, I'm afraid as a, an old-fashioned Labour voting UK, softy, middle-of-the-road socialist, I've never been a fan of inheritance. And even though, you know, I hope certainly hope my two boys inherit a lot when I shuffle off this mortal coil... What's well, the point?
0: Have going to taxed into the ground?
1: Well, not into the ground, but I do think that inherited wealth is one of the great forces for our unequal societies, particularly the more you inherit. And the idea that you shouldn't tax income that it, or tax wealth or income that hasn't been taxed already. I mean, that's what we do, Jim. That's how tax systems are built. Tax, incomes and wealth are taxed multiple times. You no doubt pay your 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 house servants all of the people that work for you in in your in um power mansions out there in in the countryside uh, oh, you, you you pay them and and all of their salaries are declared to the revenue so you pay it out of your taxed income and then their income is taxed again it's it's you pay income tax and then you pay VAT when you spend the money as a principle taxing things multiple times has been long established So let's agree to disagree on on inheritance taxes. The other thing I'd say is inheritance taxes are neither here nor there for the stock of housing. And it's the stock of housing that we have to increase. Sorry,
0: sorry, second now, it it has a lot to do with the stock of housing because the the biggest asset most of us will have to pass on to our kids is our house.
1: Yes, just because you can't pass it on doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore.
0: I I know, but why should our children be taxed into the ground because we pass on our property to them? I mean, we, well, we, we work our lives to try and build up some wealth to try and pass on to our children and then we're punished and they're punished for doing that. I find it blatantly unjust, I have to say, but we will we will agree to disagree. We will on agree it. to disagree on it. Absolutely.
1: Um, and I, it's a question of degree. I mean, I don't think all wealth should be taxed at 100 percent. And I do think that, you know, when you're passing on a few quid to your kids, that should be tax free. It's what we define to be a few quid. I don't think that can just see from other societies, particularly like the UK, where the inherited aristocracy, um, you have this class of, of people that just frankly ha, have been toxic for society. I won't start talking about the Queen and that form of aristocracy. But going back to pensions, let's, let's park inherited wealth. Going back to pensions and, and the role of government in society, you make a number of very good points. One is that, again, younger people are being penalised because they're being asked to pay for older people's pensions. There are so many myths and so many ways in which we misunderstand all of this. And frankly, pensions is you know a mind-numbingly dull subject at the best of times that, that the pensions industry overcomplicates with jargon, and all sorts of nonsense to make it even more complicated so that far too many people can extract too many, too much fees, essentially, from doing all sorts of different things in the pensions game. And I speak as somebody that used to uh, operate in that world, and so I I do know it well. Obviously, any firm that I have been associated with has been a, a, a firm that has added value to the pensions world rather than extracted it, as a number of firms do. Uh, The pension age itself, Jim, this is an example of where we live, I think, in an infantile society. Uh, You mentioned the broad point about how we expect every problem to be solved, to have a solution, and every solution to be uh, something that the government is responsible for. Neither thing can be possibly true unless you expect government to solve every single thing, including the fact that we're all going to die one day. Pensions, various people think that the pension age, which used to be 65, started with Count Otto von Bismarck and the the Prussian army. It was a genius invention of his to uh, come up with this idea that his officers in the Prussian army should get a pension at the age of 65. Actuaries would think that that was the most brilliant pension scheme ever devised because very few of those Prussian army officers ever got to 65. And then that 65 kind of stuck throughout many parts of the world, including the UK and Ireland. And for decades, 65 was the pension age. And it was just made up. There was no any thought really gone into it other than it sounded like a good sort of number to pay pensions. And it, for, for a long time, it was a great thing from, again, from an actuarial point of view, because people retired at 65 if they were lucky to get that far, when life expectancy was a lot lower than it is now. But basically, they died within three years of retiring. And so the pension didn't have to pay out for very long. So pension schemes, to the extent that they existed, were, were solvent. They've all become insolvent now, because too many people from an actuarial perspective, live into their late 80s and into their 90s and these days beyond. As a matter of just remorseless logic, the pension age has to go up. Otherwise, all these pension schemes, both public and private sector, are basically bust from an actuarial point of view. And the idea that you you shouldn't do this um, is nuts. But as I say, we live in this infantile society whereby the old in particular carry great political clout, because, and this is to the, a criticism of the younger generation. Actually, the old vote and young people don't, and young people have got to get off their asses and, and vote is one message from all of this.
0: And they are, and they're going to vote
1: for Sinn Fein. I know. Let let's. Well, we've talked about that before, and we are going to we are going to talk about it many many times in in the, in the future, no doubt, on this podcast as well. The old versus young thing can be expressed in all sorts of different ways. Every, you know, older people live in big houses that they don't need. Young people can't get anywhere to live at all. And we've had so much communication about that recently. The PRSI thing that you mentioned going to a detail that PRSI will go up to fund this new pension commitment that the government is making not to raise the retirement age, which is ludicrous. People over 66 don't pay PRSI, Jim. So even that is another example of the older generation screwing the end. So intergenerational stuff is going on all around us and, and needs to stop. But of course, it's politically toxic. Because of of the of the political clout that older people have, but yes, the pension age should should go up a lot.
0: I totally agree with you on the pension thing. I mean, I thought it was political cowardice to back off those proposed changes, but it's also like it was political cowardice to back off the water charges. But the government apparently is saying that the new plans on pensions is just an acknowledgement of political reality. And that is the reality. If you have parties like Sinn Féin and the left totally opposed to a policy such as this, it's going to be very difficult to get popular support to do it. So I I think it's a defeat for the political system, or at least for the sensible political system, in my view. You're going to see the bitching starting then when PRSI is being increased to pay for this. Um, And people won't join the dots, but the dots are very important to join. Going back to the whole inheritance tax thing, I mean, young people, number one, they cannot buy a house, okay, are very difficult to do so. And if they do, it's just going to soak up so many of their resources. If they have to rent, it's going to soak up many of their resources. So by definition, their ability to start a pension, even if they can or if it's available from their employer, is going to be very, very difficult. They will start to move through life without any real financial assets that we had because, you know, when we started working many years ago, you know, we bought a house, we got a pension, and we've gradually built that up over time. It's a bit of an nest egg. But for young people, it's becoming incredibly difficult to do that. And so the one chance they have of getting something is through inheritance. And yet... We want to tax the living Jays out of that as well. I think it's fundamentally wrong. And I think it is no wonder that young people are feeling so politically disillusioned. Not all I generalise, of course, but they're feeling so politically disillusioned at this juncture. But I don't believe the choice many are going to make to vote for Sinn Féin is going to solve any of these problems.
1: Agreed, Jim. And uh, one of the things that I, I would wanted to talk about today was actually related to all of that and uh, in particular, young people. And I call it a tale of two headlines. There were were two articles over the weekend's press that really caught my eye. One was by an Irish Times columnist called Justine McCarthy. And the headline, uh, I'll just try and look it up, actually, because I think it's important to get it absolutely right. It equated corporate corruption with young people queuing up to emigrate. And the headline goes... The young emigrate, yet the golden circle endures. So this was a story in the Irish Times about the site serve controversy in particular and corporate corruption in general. The golden circle, for readers of a certain age, are essentially the, the, the people that is assumed in the popular media, at least, to be immune from the rules that bind the rest of us and that Ireland is this corrupt country whereby certain corporate interests can do what they like, act with impunity, are beyond the law. And it's so awful, according to the headline and a line in this piece, that the young are queuing up to emigrate because of this. Uh, That's the direct implication. I made a comment on this um, on Twitter and lots of people came back to me and said, ah, sure, it's just a headline. And it was only one line in a much better piece. And that is true. It was just one line and it was just the headline, but I wouldn't use that word, just. The headline on any article is important. Often it's the only thing people read. And it, it certainly is the impression that people are left with that just skim articles. So it's important. It, I think it's wrong to dismiss it. And uh, it actually deflects from what was otherwise a reasonable piece, which is to say that there are certain things that have happened in corporate Ireland that look to be unresolved. And um, it's a, it's a great shame. But the impression that the article clearly wanted to leave the reader with was that Ireland is this, such an incredibly corrupt place that young people want to leave, presumably because of the corruption, because the other reasons for people wanting to leave Ireland were not given. I would guess that in a longer piece, if the author was pressed, he or she might say that things like housing and all the other things that you and I talk about are reasons why people want to leave. We might question what the, the assumption about people wanting to leave. There's no evidence that they actually are leaving, in the sense that all the evidence we have is that people are coming to Ireland rather than going from Ireland, in net terms anyway. The, the other thing is, where would they go? Um, there aren't many places in the world to go that are congenial and nice places to live that also have low house prices, because as we say endlessly, that the high house price thing is a global rather than a domestic problem. And if you look at the desire to leave Ireland because it is this corrupt, dystopian hellhole, which is the tone of this article, I actually went and researched all the various league tables for corruption at the country level around the world. And I found several. And a typical one was out of 180 countries, Ireland's ranking has been improving over the last number of decades. And out of 180 countries, Ireland now stands ninth. So it would be hard to find a country less corrupt than Ireland, in relative terms at least. That might mean that we're all absolutely corrupt, dystopian hellholes, equally so. But in relative terms, there isn't anywhere else to go that is demonstrably better than Ireland. And in particular, the countries that have better corruption ratings than us don't have particularly low house prices, you will be surprised to learn. So I think context is important. And context brings me to the interaction that you and I have been having with loads of readers and listeners, to the other hand, over the last while. In particular, the the, the sense is that some people agree with us, some people disagree with us, as always, but we get a lot of, you don't understand the situation facing young people. You're, you're just sitting there saying, ah, sure, it's grand, and, you know, it's not. We totally understand just how bad it is. We know the data. We understand the data. All we try to do is not say, I'm sure it's grand. We try to do three things. One is it's a global problem, whether you're looking at health or housing, the two problems that people mention the most, it's global. Secondly, you've got to put it in context. You got to be able to say the sorts of things that we say about where else would you go to get better healthcare and/or better housing, and what would you have to do? Where would you have to go? And, and there are, there are, we could go on and on. I, 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 want to mention the second headline, which is related to that global context. That this is not saying it's grand. This is actually doing number crunching which goes back to the original point that both you and I were making at the top of this show, which is we live in an age where every problem is uh, superficial. Every problem can be solved by government. And the idea that you would dive into numbers and do it properly is never done. But somebody does do it. And one of the people that did it over the weekend was a guy called John Murdoch Brown of the Financial Times. And he supplied us with proprietary data, actually, based on some published data, but some internal data generated by the Financial Times which shows every country relative to everybody else. And it's complicated, it's digging into numbers, and you have to understand concepts like if you adjust for things like purchasing power parity and all that good stuff, it doesn't matter. But what it shows, for example, is that at the beginning of this century, Ireland and the UK, if you were poor in both countries, you were equally poor. You had similar standards of living. If you take that measure now, today, for the most recent data, if you are poor in Ireland, and you are poor in the UK, you are, in Ireland, 63% better off than poor people in the UK. You're still poor, it's still crap, but that these changes have been enormous in Ireland, and Ireland's relative standing, this is the context that we go on about all the time, needs to, needs to be taken into account. And I would urge anybody to look at this article, it's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant story. But. So- Go on, go on, Jim.
0: Yeah, so this, Chris, is as a direct result of number one, our very progressive income tax system, and number two, our very generous and redistributive social welfare system.
1: Absolutely, that's exactly what it is. It's it's about Ireland, the the most redistributive tax and welfare system in the OECD. That's that's what this is all about, and how that has increased over the years. It's also a story about how crap the UK economy has been doing, actually and how poor policy generally has been in the UK. So it's a story of two countries, not just not just about Ireland and what Ireland has done, it's a story about what the UK has done or not done. And the reason why I introduced this by saying it's a story of two headlines is that John Murdoch Brown who I think is the best data journalist out there by a country mile actually and got his headline wrong just like the story around Justine McCarthy. It's less with less impact I think or less less uh importance than the the wrongness of Justine McCarthy's headline. But he described the US in this headline as being a a poor country with a lot of, I can't remember the exact title, but it was about, he, he described the US as being a poor country, which it isn't. What the US is is an incredibly rich country. And you can see that from the data that he produces with a lot of very poor people. So it's, 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 it's a big difference. So you, you, you know, you always have to be careful with your headlines with your interpretation of the data and the story that you're trying to tell and the context into which you're trying to put your story and that's all that we try to do on this podcast i would reiterate how i came into this segment by saying that those listeners who think we're saying are sure ireland's grand because it doesn't look too bad relative to other countries we don't say that at all we say that ireland doesn't look too bad indeed looks very very good relative to other countries but we do not deny that there are problems very real problems that better policy could do something about, and and we agree with that. But the the final, the sort of the third piece of any response that I give is that populist slogans are not the policies you want to adopt to cure your housing and health problems. If you think that populist sloganizing will lead to greater, better policies for housing and health, I've got a bridge to sell you because it just is. It, it, it will not happen. I reiterate: the populism of Sinn Fein and the policies that they espouse will not solve Ireland's housing problem. Back
0: to you, Jim. Yeah, interesting, Chris. Um, I, you know, I, I love your discussion there on the need to get beneath the data to find out what the real story is. I am back teaching the MBA in Smurfit Business School in UCD again, ha- have two lectures over me this year. Uh, but the one thing over the 12 lectures that I try and give these students is this inherent ability to number one, but desire to get in there and delve beneath the statistics to find out exactly what is going on underneath the bonnet, because you cannot take these sort of gross statistics at face value. You need to get in, you need to interpret to find out what the real story is. And I think there's not enough of that sort of nuanced thinking going on um, in a lot of public debate. Uh, Chris, if I could move on to what's happening at a more global level. This morning, we saw Japanese inflation hit 3%, which is the highest rate in eight years. And as we know, for 30 years, Japan has been trying to generate some inflation in a very deflationary environment. Uh, The increase in August, not surprisingly, is due to surging food and fuel prices. And also the yen is incredibly weak against the dollar at the moment. Um, In Germany, we've had producer price inflation come out 45.8% year on year increase. Producer prices have achieved another record high. So the whole inflation story is continuing to build. Energy is clearly a key part of that. Uh, The US Department of Energy has just announced that it's going to release an additional 10 million barrels of low sulfur crude oil from its strategic reserves to try and help the, well, the European situation, because Europe will have almost a full ban on importation of Russian oil in December. So at least the United States is playing a very, very positive role with Europe to try and offset the impact. Against that sort of backdrop, we have a lot of central banks, important central banks meeting this week.
1: Yeah. And we're going to get a big rise in interest rates from the Bank of England. And we're going to get a big rise in interest rates from the Fed. Possibility of 100 basis points, a full percentage point from the Fed. I can't remember the last time they did that, if they've ever done it, actually. They probably have. Do you know?
0: Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Not, not not to my knowledge, but
1: I'm, I'm sure we'll be corrected if we're wrong I'm sure about we will. When, when we probably are wrong, so yeah, we're we're getting big interest rate rises. The thing that worries me about this is that, as I've said before, is that they've discovered how to be macho, beat their chests, and say, we're going to be really, really tough Tarzan monetary policy makers, and off we go. um I think they're overdoing it, and they are caught up in some kind of you know mutual pushing each other to raise interest rates a lot. And they're mimicking each other, running with the the central bank herd, if you like. And there's nothing more comfortable than doing what everybody else in your peer group is doing. That's one thing. And I worry that they're just going to overdo it. There's a particular way in which they might overdo it there has been suggested in a much more analytical fashion than me uh, by the Peterson in- Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C., a very respected think tank, who have been saying in recent days that what they're going to get wrong is the extent to which there are feedback effects from each other around the world via the world economy. And it's all very well for the Bank of England or the Fed or whoever to be raising rates in isolation because of what's happening in their own economies. And that's what they're doing. But they're failing to take account the feedback effects that what, from what other central banks are doing on the world economy. And that they, the whole will be greater than the sum of the parts. And the monetary tightening, the, or at least the response to global monetary tightening, will be much, much stronger. Because they're all doing it together. And they're not taking those feedback, second and third round effects into account. And therefore, they run the risk of making the global slowdown or even the global recession much much worse than they realize and i would have a lot of sim- my my instincts as an aging economist are that that's precisely what's going on and i think that they are at risk of making big mistakes with overly macho interest rate rises
0: that is a very good point about the interconnection of all of these rate increases and the the the, the sort of you know the sum of all the parts being much greater than the individual parts and i you know, I I keep looking at this debate on European interest rates, particularly, and the ECB has gone very aggressively in July, again in September, increasing rates by half percent and then three quarters of one percent. And they've promised that there's a lot more of this to come. And then you look at the eurozone economy, you look at the economic indicators, they are all weakening markedly, at least most are. There's a strong consensus out there at the moment that the euro area will go into recession over the coming months, as indeed will the UK. So this very macho interest rate approach in this sort of environment um, is very, very dangerous. Looking at what's happening on the energy side, um, it is, which has been obviously A key driver of the overall inflation story. We are starting to see, you know, marked signs of a slowdown in energy prices. Brent crude is down at $92 a barrel, which I think is roughly where it was prior to the invasion of Ukraine back in February. Natural gas prices are also coming back significantly from the highs, although, you know, they're still at very elevated levels relative to where they were a couple of years ago, but at at least the price pressures are moving in the right direction. So with commodity prices starting to improve, albeit we are entering into a very uncertain energy-related winter, but um, with headline inflation likely to come back down again, this interest rate approach does appear to me to be uh, pretty dangerous.
1: Yeah, I think there's a good chance that both the UK and the Eurozone economies are either very close or perhaps, I think, even more likely in recession right now. I think we're going to look back uh, on the third and almost certainly the fourth quarter of this year, the one about to start next month, as being times of recession. Check my forecasts this time next year, but uh, I think we're already in one. So this aggressive rise in interest rate thing that we're engaged in at a time of recession... I'm I'm unconvinced as to where it's going to lead, what it's, what's going to happen. And it makes me very, very nervous indeed. There are lots of things that make me nervous, actually, Jim. I was looking at a stat with we've, we've been talking about energy prices. But one of the things that affects energy prices, of course, is how much storage of energy that we've actually got, how much have we got in stock. And one of the reasons why gas prices you mentioned going up enormously during August last month is that Germany in particular, but Europe in general, was buying up gas at any price and I also suspect a few hedge funds traded on the back of this so that there was both real and speculative activity going on but Germany is now nearly not 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 fully but nearly filled its storage as have other countries it's not going to be enough if it's a very very cold winter but if it's a if it's an average winter it will be enough to get us through, Without power cuts in Europe. I think that we are in for big trouble if it is a very severe winter. A lot now does depend on the weather. But in terms of storage, Germany is up to something like 217 terawatt hours, is the measure. And uh, France has also got 122 terawatt hours. Even old Italy has got 162. Do you know how much the UK's got? Nine. That's because Liz Truss, when she was in the Treasury a few years ago, took a decision to scrap most of the remaining storage facilities for gas. Now, we've got to allow for the fact that the UK does have access to its own gas in the North Sea, but it still relies an awful lot on imports from countries like Norway. So the UK, I think, is in a bit of a sticky, particularly sticky position if it's a very severe winter. That's, I think, an interesting stat. I want to conclude today by just mentioning two things. One is, again, energy-related. I talked about Germany having 217 terawatt hours of gas storage. Bitcoin, our favourite, uh, one of our favorite things that we haven't talked about for a long time, keeps going down in price, as we correctly forecast. He inappropriately pats himself on the back for So compared to, say, France's storage of 122 terawatt hours, which everybody's very happy about, Bitcoin consumes 130 terawatt hours a year in energy in terms of its production. So, uh, it's the same energy consumption as countries like Sweden for instance. Ridiculous. Absolute nonsense should stop and should be stopped, in my opinion. But anyway, the second completely unrelated thing that has scared me to death this week has been video of Donald Trump's latest rally. What happened towards the end was that somebody played some music, which I, I'd never heard before, but apparently the music is is a uh, prompt for, from QAnon supporters to give what is called the QAnon salute, which looks horribly like the straight-armed fascist salute to me. I don't know whether you saw it.
0: I did indeed. Yeah, very disturbing stuff.
1: Yeah. So on that cheery note, I'll shut up. Jim, anything else you want to say today?
0: No, I I, I, I just hope um, Trump gets his comeuppance over the coming months and that he doesn't make it to the starting point for the November 24 presidential election. I think globally that would be a disaster. Talk to you, Chris. Cheers, buddy. Speak soon. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.